Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Dr. Rebecca Auer is a surgical oncologist and scientist at the Ottawa General Hospital. She spoke with us about her career as a surgeon scientist, her work on developing a COVID-19 vaccine, and her tips and tricks on productivity. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to Dr. Auer's website and the papers we discuss in the episode. Dr. Auer, thank you so much for coming on Cold Steel, especially during these crazy times. We really do appreciate you taking out the time to come in and join with us and speak with us. Many of our listeners will know you, but for those who don't know you as well, can you tell us about your training pathway? Where did you do residency and uh, and your fellowship? Absolutely, and, and thank you both for the invitation to chat with you today. Uh, so I did, my, um, well, I did my medical school at Queen's University, which was my parents' alma mater, so that, of course, made them very proud. And then after that, I uh, went to Ottawa to do my uh, residency in general surgery. And during my residency in Ottawa, I also did um, a master's degree in um, biochemistry and molecular biology. Uh, And then after my residency, I went to uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City and did a two-year fellowship in surgical oncology. And then came back to Ottawa and uh, have been on staff there since then. Rebecca, yeah, I'd, I would emulate what uh, what Amir said, and thank you so much for for being with us. We really do know how busy you are. Um, a, a lot of us as Canadians go down to the U.S. to do various fellowships, and um, certainly I don't know uh, the extended group that um, that you trained with in Memorial, but I certainly know the HPB guys. Memorial is a really special place, uh, a really neat place, and it's structured differently. I was curious. Um, how you found that experience, what some of the benefits maybe of going to a different uh, high-speed place like that were and what you brought back to Canada? Yeah, so I mean, I think that my strong desire to go down there was really to experience something different than uh, both than Canadian healthcare and, and then also then, uh, you know, surgical practice in, in Canada and, and really be with some of the leaders in surgical oncology. Um, and I liked the fact that the training program had a lot of uh, trainees, a lot of fellows. So there's 14 fellows at any time, at least when I was there. Um, so it is really a, a good camaraderie of people. Um, and it was an incredible experience. Uh, of course, you're living in Manhattan. And so because it's prohibitively expensive, the hospital will subsidize an apartment for you. So it's one of the only times that you probably get to live in you know, the middle of Manhattan near Central Park, and um, and that in and of, of itself is quite an experience. Although I have to admit, you you uh, experience it a little less than you otherwise would because the work expectations are pretty intense uh, um, in terms of hours. Um, but it is definitely a, a different culture um, down there. Uh, I think, I mean, I learned an incredible amount um, academically, uh, surgically, and then just also in terms of uh, they really emphasize the way surgical oncologists think and approach problems so that you really develop this framework for 
looking at a cancer problem that maybe there is no data to support decision making and how do you break that decision down and um, try and figure out you know whether an operation makes sense um, so I thought those were really valuable I also brought back a strong sense that we actually have incredibly good healthcare in Canada and in some ways we we do things better um, certainly in terms of better care for everyone as a population um, we we have that and we have this mentality that um, that everyone deserves good care and so we make decisions that are going to be good for patients and for populations um, and I, I think that also made me realize that we are we have an exceptionally good healthcare system here and I'm, I'm proud to be part of it um, yeah, you, you know I, I couldn't agree more as you know I was in a, a few places and a few fellowships in the US and, and that's sort of what what brought me back to Canada was the realization that our healthcare system was was really comprehensive really equitable and and just like these places in the U.S. where all of us sort of go to train, the, there is a, you know, a real passion for, for great patient care at all levels. The, I also found that the, essentially the range in care was really tight in Canada, whereas the variability was my impression in the U.S. was really, really quite broad. Yeah, definitely variability. And, and variability depending on what hospital you went to, what provider, what provider you saw. Um, and also uh, just in terms of what kind of insurance you had. Yeah, for so sure. What, what specifically brought you back to Ottawa? Because that's a great landing spot, obviously. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I was lucky in a way that um, when I left for New York, I already had a job offer in Ottawa to come back. And there was two reasons why I really wanted to come back. Um, and one was a uh, surgical oncologist that, and colorectal surgeon that many listeners will know, Hartley Stern. Um, who uh, had asked me to come back and uh, and take over half of his practice. And he was my really my surgical mentor and the one who kind of um, encouraged me to go to New York and, and bring that skill set back to Ottawa. And uh, the second person was my scientific mentor and, and who still is, um, who's a uh, world-renowned oncologic virus expert, uh, Dr. John Bell. And I had done my master's with him, and he had asked me to come back and consider starting a lab um, with their group, and uh, and so I really wanted to do some uh, lab-based uh, translational research, and uh, wanted to do surgical oncology, predominantly colorectal. Um, although now I also do soft tissue sarcoma, but uh, so the the job really looked ideal, and um, it's where I my husband was currently living, so that also helped a little bit. Um, although he was he was um, interested in you know, he would have moved, but I think there was, those are the two main reasons. Um, and I always was committed to coming back to Canada. I don't think I ever imagined I would, I would stay in the U.S. Um, again, for, for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which was, um, I really felt uh, it was important to have a, to work in a healthcare system with the kind of equity um, and global uh, approach to good cancer care. My observation, Dr. R, from spending a little bit of time um, in Ottawa uh, on elective, was that your group in at this at the general and, and more broadly in Ottawa is really fantastic. It's a very cohesive, very collegial group of surgeons. And one of the, my favorite things about being on elective there was actually attending M and M's. And I would just love the discussions that were so candid and frank between the faculty. And I'd learned so much from those discussions. How do you think that culture has developed at the general? Has it always kind of been like that? Or 
what has been the deliberate things that that you think have happened to make the culture like that? Yeah, that, <clears throat> that's a really good question because uh, I I'm not sure that it was always like that. Um, I remember Eminem as a resident, and I remember being terrified to present and um, and having you know feeling pretty demoralized after presenting a case and. And so I, I don't remember it as being a positive experience as a resident. So that's interesting that you have that perspective. Um, but I do think now that we do, we have very open and candid discussions. And um, I think that's evolved maybe over the last decade. Uh, I know the Ottawa hospital, like many hospitals has implemented this concept of just culture. And, uh, you know, we have signs all over the OR that say, if you see something, say something just like in the airport, you know, so um, and we also, in, in my OR, I'll, I'll say to uh, residents and medical students, if something doesn't make sense to you, if you think something is, is wrong, you need to speak up. Everyone needs to be heard, you know, because it's, it's the uh, nursing student who will notice that the lap pad is still in the pelvis. You know, it, it, everyone has a role to play in terms of making sure that we, we all protect each other from mistakes. And, and mistakes happen. And I think just culture means that we don't, go and blame somebody we look at the system and figure out how is it that this could have happened and what can we do to make sure it never happens again um so i i hope that's the culture that we continue to reinforce um but uh i, I think it has evolved in the in the more recent time i remember feeling quite uh, quite worried about m&m rounds as a resident so Rebecca, you're in a relatively small group of, of surgeons in Canada who, who have managed to persevere and still engage at a very fundamental and core level uh, in basic science or benchtop research. It's interesting. I didn't know you had a, a master's in, bio, in biochemistry, and it, it makes me feel a bit sad because I, I do too. But, of course, it's not really something other than the methodology part of things that, that I engaged uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis. But you clearly are, are doing some amazing work. How have you done that? Um, what kept you interested in, in that basic science element? Um, what keeps you passionate going forward despite all the obstacles and hurdles that seem to be increasing sort of by the year? Yeah, certainly hurdles are increasing. You're right about that. And and um, what I would say is that even if I didn't have a lab, I think doing a, a master's or an advanced degree in, in the lab would have been and, and continues to be a very useful endeavor just in allowing you to sort of think through problems and come up with hypotheses and figure out how to solve those problems. So, um, so I really enjoyed my time in the lab and and always wanted to do some time in the lab, even as a, a junior resident. Um, I would always go to basic science presentations and wish that I understood more than I than I did. So, but I think that the fact that I was able to do it is solely based on the collaborators and uh, and mentorship I had in the lab. I was really fortunate to join a group um, called the Cancer Therapeutics Program at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. And it's 14 core scientists, but there are actually about 150 investigators in the program and about 400 members, wow. uh, students and research associates, technicians, and that kind of thing. And it's a fully open concept. So there's three, uh, there's one floor, but three separate wings, and all the labs are open. So no one has a closed door. Um, the labs are intermixed, so you might be besides somebody on your bench that is from a different PI's lab. And all the equipment really is shared between everybody. 
Um, and that, that concept of sort of collaboration also uh, extends to helping each other uh, with grants and with, um, you know, we even have um, sort of a, a fund for common supplies. So if one scientist is a little bit less affluent, let's say, than another in terms of their grant funding, that they, they don't have to pay as much for common supplies. Um, so it really is this incredibly collaborative group of scientists. There are um, two clinicians in that group. I'm one of the fortunate ones to be in that group. And uh, I've really taken advantage of their uh, goodwill and their expertise. I think I got really, really good advice very early on to get senior people in your lab to run your lab. And so I have um, a team of, uh, of researchers. The, the person who runs my lab, for example, is infinitely smarter and better trained than I am. He's got a PhD and two postdocs. And uh, so he runs the day-to-day -day of the lab. And, um, and then I have a couple of amazing technicians, a veterinary technician who does all the animal surgeries and a clinical coordinator technician who does all the patient consenting for samples so we can do experiments on the blood. And so these people really make it possible for me to kind of more think about what the next questions are or the next trial is um, and what grants we're kind of going to shoot for but they really are the ones that make it happen. So I think that's been how it's been able to work. In terms of staying passionate about it, it's all those people that bring me so much energy. You know, they, you know when the students come and they have a new experiment, it's, it's so exciting and it's so fun uh, to be able to look at the data and talk about it and think about it. And I, I mean, they teach me so much every day. Um, and I'm pretty full disclosure. I'll say, okay, I don't know anything about mTOR signaling, so you need to explain this to me. And uh, they're they're fantastic. So it's like free education for me every uh, every week. So I've been really lucky to have a great team. It's amazing to hear you describe the physical structure, and I think you know, sure, it's it's fantastic that you were able to walk into that, but clearly whoever the group of people were that had that initial vision, I mean, th that's the foundation. And, and you, I really feel, you know, terrible. And we all, we all um, feel bad for folks who are sort of isolated in their own surgeon scientist labs. Um, it, it's probably not the model for the future. Uh, there, there's no doubt if you want to be that productive. I mean, it's also interesting to think about, you know, the science of proximity, physical proximity in our, in our workplace, whether that's in a lab or whether that's, you know, our colleagues in surgical oncology or hepatobiliary surgery or trauma, that physical proximity, once you leave about 25 feet, you might as well be based in, in Asia on a phone. You know, it's such a big deal. Yeah. You know, you just hit on two, I think, things that ring so true for me. Um, the first is, uh, you know, my uh, good colleague and friend, Dr. Fadi Bala, who is our division uh, chief for a while, and he used to say, um, you know, William Os Osler's famous quote about the triple threat, you know, mm -hmm. the surgeon, the great surgeon, educator, and researcher. And what he would say is that it's almost impossible to be a triple threat uh, as a surgeon in today's society, but as a division and as a group of individuals, we need to be a triple threat. We need to figure out how, as a cohesive group, we can deliver on all of those things. But each person might have one or two roles uh, that where they really uh, are, have the expertise and they cover it for all of us. And I think that that is so true that we, you know, I, 
I'm not going to understand the fine details of intracellular signaling. But if I can be on a team where somebody else does, then we can really make some advance, advances there. Um, and the other fantastic thing about our lab group is the cancer center lab is one, uh, one floor above the chemo unit, two floors above the clinic, right across the uh, a turning circle from the OR and the wards. So it really, like you said, proximity really makes a huge difference. Yeah, um, it really does. You, you know, there's there's no doubt we could talk all day about the amazing stuff you and your team are doing, but I, I wanted to touch on, on briefly some of the very timely and topical work you're doing in terms of uh, a COVID vaccine. Would you be willing to talk about that, Tess? Yeah, I'd love to, actually. So... This is kind of an exciting project for me. And obviously, COVID is not something, you know, I, I would normally be studying or, or vaccines uh, for infectious disease at all. But it's interesting because, of course, I work in a virology lab. So so many of the people in the cancer therapeutics program are vi virologists and have been recruited because of Dr. Bell, who's a virologist and, and is studying cancer-killing viruses. So, um, so I have a lot of people with a lot of virology background around me. And my um, passion and focus has been studying how the innate immune system doesn't work well um, in cancer patients, but particularly after surgery. So we have um, really clarified that natural killer cells, which are um, kind of part of the body's first line defense, and they aren't antigen specific, so they don't go after specific abnormal uh, proteins or, or pieces of RNA and DNA, they go, but they go after cells that are abnormal for either they're virally infected or they're cancer cells and they have particular markers on them uh, as a global unit. So natural killer cell function is really important for cancer prevention and also cancer outcomes. And natural killer cells don't work after surgery almost at all. Effectively, we call them paralyzed. And they don't work for over a month. And so we've been trying to understand why this happens and how to reverse it for quite a long time. Um, and of course, when COVID came, our, our lab, like all the labs in Canada really have had to sort of shut down and only do essential work. But we were, we've been talking and thinking about the fact that um, natural killer cells really are the first line of defense against infectious disease, as is the innate immune system. And there's some data out there to suggest that the reason why some patients have really um, attenuated response to COVID or even an asymptomatic response and others have this very terrible response really has to do with their, um, the ability of their innate immune system to respond early and quickly to viral infection. And what's interesting is in, in veterinary medicine, like in cattle uh, transports and in feedlots, they, they use these nonspecific activators of the innate immune system as vaccines to prevent spread of diseases like bovine coronaviruses, which are responsible for these bovine respiratory diseases that uh, cost, you know, $900 million in the U.S. economy every year by by making cattle sick in the feedlots. So this concept of boosting the innate immune system to prevent symptomatic respiratory illness is, is really quite well understood in, in other fractions of, of, uh, of medicine. So we started to think about, could we use an innate immune booster? Um, and I was thinking specifically in our cancer patients who are at high risk because they have a weakened innate immune system and they have to come to the hospital for therapy. So they can't self-isolate like they would want to. And um, I had, uh, through the Ontario Institute of Cancer Research, made a connection with a company that had um, a vaccine that basically could do this. Um, and uh, it's similar to the BCG vaccine. So 
maybe some of your listeners have heard some of the data around BCG. There are about uh, eight trials now going on to determine if BCG can essentially do this. And it does it through a concept called trained immunity. Basically, it trains your immune system to fight better uh, to the next virus infection. It's not specific to tuberculosis, which BCG is the vaccine designed to prevent, but it's actually uh, for any respiratory illness, any infectious illness. So this uh, other product um, is different because BCG is a live vaccine and it can't be given to cancer patients because uh, uh, because they're immunosuppressed. You can't have a live vaccine if you're undergoing chemotherapy. But this other vaccine, um, this company called Imodulon, is a heat-killed vaccine and it can be given to cancer patients. So we have um, are in the process of launching a trial to basically vaccinate uh, 1,500 cancer patients, either vaccinate or observation, with this um, heat-killed vaccine that will boost their innate immune system and see if we can prevent respiratory illness. So that's what I've been working on quite a lot over the last sort of six weeks to try and get that trial to the point where uh, it's ready to open. We're hoping to have it open in early June. I, I'm just curious, and I, I realize you don't have a crystal ball and, and, and you're not a prophet, but you know, the, the layman question continues to be, when does a vaccine come? In your, you know, with your wisdom and your experience, what, what ballpark do you think that is? So I think one of the things that's kind of becoming increasingly understood about coronavirus particularly is that um, kind of our, our straightforward approach to a vaccine that we would normally use, like for influenza or even for the Ebola um, epidemic that happened, um, we would normally make a vaccine that would generate a really good antibody-mediated immune response called a humoral immune response. And um, so there's been some vaccines that have been attempted to generate a humoral immune response against the spike protein, that's the protein that's on the surface and the most immunogenic protein for coronaviruses. There's a couple of potential problems with that strategy. Number one is that um, we have a lot of endemic coronaviruses, so 30, up to 35% of the common cold is a coronavirus. And what we know is that even though when you get sick, you can generate an anti antibody response to coronavirus, it doesn't necessarily protect you from getting the same coronavirus in the same season. It also goes away fairly quickly. So for whatever reason, that antibody response doesn't remain. Um, and by the following year, it's often gone. So this is one concern about the traditional vaccine approach. The second is that in some uh, studies, in particular in, in cats or feline coronaviruses, um, there, there's something called an antibody-enhanced um, infection, uh, where antibodies in theory could bind and coat the coronavirus spike protein but then those antibodies, because they have FC receptors on their other side, could get internalized into the uh, B cells and, and um, macrophages and actually start replicating in a, in a cell that it otherwise wouldn't have been able to infect because it doesn't have the, they don't have the ACE2 receptors that the coronavirus binds to. And that could actually increase, um, increase uh, infection. Um, and the third concerning thing is that patients who are in some cases dying of coronavirus seem to have an antibody response. And despite that, there's less effort. They're still dying of coronavirus. So that's not, that's not to say that an antibody-based vaccine is not going to work, but it's not as sure of a thing as it might have been for a different virus. 
So a lot of the vaccine developers, um, the ones that are out now are predominantly mediated towards an anti-spike protein immune response. Um, but I think some of the newer vaccines, so again, my, my mentor, John Bell, has been working on a couple of new vaccines that he imagines will be in clinical trial in early 2021. And they have to also get the T cell immune response to be effective because that seems to be the one that is going to be better able to protect people. So all that to say, the vaccine isn't as straightforward as we would have maybe liked it to be. Um, once it's available, it's obviously going to have to be tested. And so I think we have to be realistic that we're probably looking at about a year um, before we have something. And then I guess the last concerning piece is this data coming out that Canadians are saying that they may not want to get vaccinated. Um, and so what do you do with that? People's general feeling is they don't want to get a brand new vaccine. Um, how, how do you manage that in society? Is it mandatory? And if it isn't mandatory, what happens if you refuse to get it? Or do we just vaccinate high-risk people and let the disease run? So heart, really tough. They're really tough questions. These really are very, very challenging problems, uh, as you outlined, for both technical reasons, but also like the bigger behavioral problems. And, and we've seen that for everything from just the idea of getting vaccinations, but also like the distancing piece of it, the um, wearing masks, etc. So, so really, some some big cha challenges ahead. I'm really impressed that you were able to pivot so quickly, uh, given you know I'm sure that you, it's not easy to pivot uh, in a basic science uh, setting. What what was your experience been like in in trying to tackle a a big worldwide challenge like this? And what what have the hurdles been in terms of just getting something like this uh, off the ground? Um, and I'm thinking about just the length of time that it takes to develop uh, a therapy that can actually be tested and, and get into cl clinical trials. Yeah, so, I mean, I was, again, very lucky that um, I, I was looking for a, an immune modulator because we had this idea that it might work. And I, I'm talking to a few companies that had things in very early development. So we were talking about maybe a phase one trial for safety and, and immune responses. And then um, through a colleague, actually, the, the scientific director at the OICR, he had a, a contact with, um, again, a company that had a product that had already been tested in cancer patients. And in fact, this uh, vaccine, it's called IMM 101, it, it actually has a, been tested in a phase two trial of pancreatic cancer patients, metastatic pancreatic cancer patients with an improvement in overall survival. So small study, but really good safety data and some really good immune data to support it. So after I chatted with them, then I, I talked to a colleague of mine who's the senior investigator at the Canadian Cancer Trials Group for the GI group and pitched the idea to him. And it's really been the Canadian Cancer Trials Group that has been able to make this happen. They have the infrastructure, they have the resources. Um, the biggest challenge has been to try to find funding. And as of now, we, we have a few uh, potential funding avenues, um, but we don't have any cold cash yet, <laughs> cold hard cash yet. But, um, but we're, we're pretty optimistic. But um, working with the Canadian Cancer Trials Group has been amazing because they, they really have the expertise and the know-how to get these things off the ground. And fantastic colleagues. So we're going to open at eight sites. And uh, at each site, there's been um, sort of a designated site PI who's been amazing. Uh, you know, we had like a three-hour call on the Easter weekend to develop the, 
endpoints and the inclusion and exclusion criteria for the trial and stuff. So people have been really invested and, and really given a lot of their time and energy towards it. So um, that's been fantastic. Certainly zero chance I could have done this on my own. I just don't have either the know-how or really the, um, the, the network to do it. And then, you know, learning about coronavirus has also been easy because I have this amazing group of scientists that I work with. So instead of as soon as we were all on pandemic uh, lockdown, we switched our journal club to, uh, to virtual and we changed it to a COVID club. So every week someone talks for an hour about coronavirus and how it replicates and what are the issues with it. So I've got this like amazing uh, slide deck and presentation once a week that keeps me up to date on all the latest and greatest on the biology of coronavirus, which again, I can't tell you how fantastic that is to just be able to participate in those kinds of discussions. I think it's so neat that uh, you're able to, um, you know, really capitalize on that opportunity. And, and obviously you were well-placed from all your hard work going in, in, into this uh, to be able to do that. I did want to touch on one of your papers that I thought was so cool and so interesting, which was the influenza vaccine and its effect on postoperative metastatic disease. Can you talk us through that paper and the implications from that paper? Yeah, so again, as I mentioned before, like what we have been really focused on studying is why natural killer cells don't work after surgery. And at least in our animal models, the fact, the fact that they don't work after surgery promotes metastatic disease. And whether that's true in humans or not, we don't know for sure. But I think that there is, there's definitely good evidence from all of our animal models that um, dysfunctional NK cells uh, can help metastases to grow in the postoperative period. And, uh, and so if we can boost that natural killer cell function right after surgery, we hope that like in animals, we could attenuate and, and prevent metastases at a later time point. So um, because I work with uh, virologists, I, my first trial that I wrote um, uh, around this was to use an oncolytic virus after surgery. And that trial enrolled a couple of people, two people, but it ended up getting closed. And I think what I realized was if you're going to give something to patients right after surgery, um, it has to be something that is safe and has been um, tested in, in a number of people and, and so that there's less concerns. Nothing happened, by the way, in the trial that closed, just that there was so much um, angst around giving an oncolytic virus to patients right before surgery that ultimately it just seemed like we needed to change directions. Um, patients that had it were fine, but we, so we decided to go with something that was maybe a little bit less, um, or had a little bit more of a safety profile. So I had this amazing postdoc who's now a PI in her own lab at Sherbrooke, and she basically went to the pharmacy and got uh, every, um, every vaccine that's been tested in, in humans and has like a really good safety profile and tested them in our animal model. And interestingly, the influenza vaccine was the one who, that was best at, uh, at um, uh, uh, upregulating or, or um, activating rather natural killer cells and uh, could at least attenuate the suppression that happened after surgery. Although they still did get suppressed, but they were so hyperactivated before surgery that they were suppressed less. And so, um, so she did all of this sort of preclinical work to validate that. And we showed that giving the influenza vaccine before surgery could 
could um, prevent men's static disease or attenuate it. And, um, and so we were, we were excited about that, but I didn't really want to do a trial with just an influenza vaccine before surgery. So we subsequently did quite a bit of work trying to figure out why the NK cells are suppressed and ultimately figured out that there's this population of myeloid cells. We call them surgery-induced myeloid-derived suppressor cells. But these cells uh, increase significantly up to threefold um, and up to 30% of your blood has these very suppressive myeloid cells after surgery. And they seem to be responsible for this natural killer cell defect after surgery. And um, we found, uh, again, we tested a panel of things that have been shown to prevent the suppression of these cells and found that uh, Tadalafil, which is otherwise known as um, Cialis, uh, so the erectile dysfunction drug, it was able to prevent this. So we put them together basically and uh, we were able to prevent the suppression and hyperactivate the natural killer cells. And this gave us the best response. And now we're doing a trial. It's on hold with COVID, unfortunately, but we've, uh, we're just over halfway done a trial looking at that in, in humans now. That's such a neat paper. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to see where that goes. And uh, I look forward to watching that space. Um, I had a, a sort of a different question, uh, kind of in thinking and looking at your, your research where you're looking at um, some really cool immunotherapies, but also thinking more broadly as I approach my exam, which it should happen some sometime. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's really neat to actually look at the evolution of how we treat a lot of surgical, what were th- traditionally thought of as surgical diseases. You think about melanoma or breast cancer and you know the role of surgery in a lot of these diseases is becoming less and less i'm curious uh, given your your training as a surgical oncologist but also your your background research do you think that um, surgeons are going to still maintain that kind of that central role in those diseases Uh, and and sort of a second part of that question is do you think surgeons should have more of a formal oncology training uh, during their training? Like maybe should we be rotating through oncology uh, as residents? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question. And, uh, you know, I've, I've seen in some cases where, you know, these immunotherapies or targeted agents have, have actually increased the indications for surgery in patients who have metastases, for example. So we often see in our practice the patient that would otherwise never have been operable um, but has had these phenomenal responses to an immunotherapy, for example, and just has one spot left and, and should we do surgery and kind of don't know the answer to that. Um, on the other hand, there, there are certainly other situations where one wonders that the targeted agent might take the place of surgery. Um, although I think that's, that's happening. Uh, I mean, it's, it, I think surgery is still central. I don't think we have a lot of examples where that's completely taken over. Um, but I think that, I think your point about having a, a separate rotation is, is probably an important one. It's hard for me to imagine that in 10 years from now, you'd be able to look after a cancer patient if you didn't understand at least the basics of molecular biology. Um, because targeted agents, immunotherapies, the way that our cancer interacts with us as a host, um, the way that it signals inside its cell is, is paramount to how we treat it. And, um, you know, we don't talk about colon cancers, for example, in MySpace. We talk about the KRAS mutant, the BRAF mutant, the MSI high, um, 
etc. And these are all what parameters will decide what types of therapy you get. Now, surgery still is central in that disease, but increasingly may not be. Um, and so unless you understand at least the basics of molecular biology and, and how it you know, and how it matters in the surgical and, and oncological care. I think it's hard to really join that conversation. Um, but maybe we're not quite there yet, but it's moving much faster than, than it used to. The number of new drugs in oncology that are being approved year on year is just going up and up. And we're going to subset divide cancers more and more. And certainly in the U.S., it's much more common to have your, your tumor completely genotyped. Um, with sort of a list of actionable mutations. We don't have that yet in Canada um, to the same extent because I don't think it's borne out yet that we that we have uh, successful therapies based on those approaches. But I think it'll happen over time. So I think surgeons need to be in the know when it comes to that kind of cancer uh, management because it's definitely going to change who we operate on and when we operate on those patients as well. I still think surgery is going to be central for quite a long time. Surgery is the one thing that you can do and, and, and then it's done. Um, like you can take the tumor out and that may be all you need. That's so interesting. You know, Rebecca, we've been lucky enough on cold steel to have a lot of uh, really interesting dynamic and, accomplished guests and, and you're of course no, no different one of the questions that we try and ask almost everybody and I would argue that maybe that you take this to even a higher level with the basic science and granting side is how do you how do you organize your life so that you're so productive um, you know clearly being or organized by definition is the foundation of that but what sort of tools or tips would you have for uh, maybe a trainee or even subsequent to that someone starting out in their practice in terms of being as productive maybe as you have been um, again besides basic organization and besides obviously the inherent genetic um, you know interest and motor that you obviously have yeah I mean I, I, it's a really good question and I, I see that you'd asked it uh, when the she sent me on the pre-call so I've been thinking about it quite a bit what would I tell my my trainee self, for example. Um, I think a, a few pieces of advice that I got early on that I, that I always uh, think about. Uh, one of them is uh, it's, it's a marathon, it's not a race. And I think when I first started my practice, you know, I, the, the very first year I said, well, I've got to apply for a CIHR grant. I've got to get, uh, got to get some money into my lab. And and my mentor, John Bell, said, no, you don't, actually. You need to start your practice. You need to be confident in the OR. You need to, you know, get your, you know, make sure that you feel comfortable with that. You need to do some experiments in the lab to get some preliminary data and go for a small local grant. You know, really, like, this is not a race. This is a marathon. If you want to do this for your whole career, you need to slow down and take your time and build little by little. And that was good advice because I've seen other people really try um, very early on to compete with the scientists, some of whom have, you know, these multi-million dollar labs. And, and it's an exercise in frustration and failure, um, which is why I, I strongly advocate that for surgeons and, and for any clinician, really, new investigators should be considered the first 10 years at minimum. I mean, it's three years before I felt like I could walk into an operating room and know with confidence that I was the best person to do the job. You know, just that that lingering doubt, like, 
am I as good as the people that train me? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that everyone has that and probably for a good reason. You, you want to be extra careful and extra prepared when you are starting out in, in your surgical practice. And so um, you can't, you can't sort of take anything for granted at that point. You know, I think this. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say it's 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 truly amazing that you got that advice out of the gate because it, it's a bit contrarian to what we usually hear, right? Which is, what have you accomplished at three years? What have you accomplished at five years? If you haven't, you know, obtained grants and been up to speed, then you're done. Uh, and that, that sounds dramatic, but that's really been the narrative in most places, I, I would say. So that that's remarkable. Yeah, I think that narrative can be really damaging because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the first big grant we got for a national trial, which was my my very first trial, Periopo 1, which is still ongoing uh, across Canada. But um, I got it, uh, I was past three years, um, and we had submitted it to 11 different grant uh, (laughs) competitions. I mean, that's kind of sad, but... uh, you know, I'm, I, I often say to people, I'm below the national average in terms of my success rate for grants. And so, you know, you have to, you have to keep, you know, trying to hit the ball and eventually it's going to connect and you're going to get something going. But if you feel demoralized and, and want to give up every time you fail, um, if the messaging you're getting is that you're a failure because you failed, um, that's the wrong message. Um, you're only a failure if you don't resubmit it. And I think I've had uh, really good in my head and my, one of my other good colleagues who I ran this Periapo one trial with, he's, um, he's about the same, uh, you know, age as me, the same sort of stage of career, but he also had fantastic mentorship. And he, he told me about his rejection drawer. He said, have a drawer in your office or a virtual drawer on your computer where you put the rejections as soon as you get them, don't read them, just put them in the drawer. And then find a time later when you're ready to resubmit or when you're ready to re-go back to the drawing board and then pull them out and look at them and, and only read the things that you can fix. Yeah, um, that's that's such great advice. You know, the concept of perseverance, obviously, we all know is important, but in particular in, in science and, and I think even more in particular with with the, the bandwidth that sometimes we as surgeons struggle with given all that's going on perseverance is the is the is the key and sometimes you have to whether it's a basic science paper or whether it's a a clinical paper you you know your 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 letter in terms of the response to the requested edits from the reviewer can be longer than the paper if you do it well (laughs) Uh, you're right it's it's painful and that's exactly what i do too you get this terrible letter you know it says not only is your science bad but you you're a bad person so you know read it once put it away for a little while and come back to it when you're you know you've digested it and and you're ready to look at it with an open mind because even in some of the really aggressive reviews there's always stuff in there that has merit that we can used to improve and, and, and uh, enhance the, the paper. So yeah, you're right. Perseverance in all aspects of life is so important. Yeah. And I think you really have to, you have to be pursuing something that you're passionate in and you believe in, obviously. And we all know that's true. You know, how many times uh, have, have people said to me this, you, you know, you're studying this post-op immune suppression. That's, that's stupid. There's no way surgery promotes metastatic disease. There's no way that immune suppression after surgery matters clinically. That's just an animal model thing. And, you know, it's possible that they're right. But um, I, I need to be the one to continuously believe in that, even when the naysayers don't. 
Um, and there's lots of examples of people who were told there's no way, there's no way, there's no way. And then eventually they, they demonstrated the uh, validity of that. So um, I could be wrong and my whole career might be uh, a bust for trying to figure this out, but it's a risk I'm willing to take. Dr. R, I, I do want to um, be a bit selfish here and, and get some uh, tips from you uh, really about the whole time management, person management piece because it, it really does boggle me that uh, you can wear so many different hats um, and particularly with the basic science lab and actually having other um, students and, and researchers in your lab as well. What are your maybe top three tips for uh, managing your time uh, and uh, being able to, you know, juggle so many different things? Yeah, so for sure, that's a really good question. Another great piece of advice I got really early on was do what you can do and outsource the rest. So I'm a strong proponent of the outsourcing. And, and that's really why, you know, having a fantastic team helps so much. So I have a great lab team, um, including, you know, someone who can run the lab and, and run, run the day-to-day -day operations. I also have, you know, I, I have my own administrative assistant. I don't share her with anyone and uh, obviously have to pay her full salary, but she is fantastic and is able to kind of deal with my calendar and organize my life. And so things like, you know, uh, she, less so now my kids are a little older but certainly when they were little she would actually email the teachers directly and they would communicate with her directly so Christmas concerts um, you know presentations whatever I wanted to go to field trips I'd say like one field trip per kid per term can you make sure that happens and she would <laughs> call the teachers and try and figure out how I could volunteer on a field trip and cancel my clinic on that day if needed or clear my schedule. So having that kind of thing is amazing. We have the most wonderful caregiver at home for my family that we've had since my son was, my eldest was six months old and he's now 11. She's been part of our life and, uh, and makes the home stuff work. And, and of course I have a wonderful partner who's super supportive and, um, and understands how much I love, I love what I do. So having that, those, that team of people, in fact, this COVID thing has really made me realize how much of a village my my world has and how I'm missing my village so much these days because um, we've been so blessed with that, with having so many people in our lives that help out. And I guess the other thing would be that um, a lot of people talk about work-life balance, and I have decided that that doesn't exist for me. First of all, I don't think that balance is achievable. Balance would suggest that you have some equity between those things. And the other thing is it suggests that life, that work is not part of your life when, as most of us as surgeons, our work is a huge part of our life. It's, it's part of our identity uh, for many people. And that's not to say that we aren't anything else, but it is a huge part of who I am and what makes me me. And, um, and that's, I think that's okay. Uh, so I prefer to say there's work-home harmony and uh, sometimes that harmony is completely off and my kids really will make sure I know it when it is. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I think they also know that I, I love what I do. In fact, my eldest once said to me, like, you're lucky that you love what you do. And I said, you know what? I'm really lucky that I do. I said, whatever you do in life, make sure you love it too, because you spend a lot of time doing it. 
So I think uh, it's not perfect, let me tell you. <laughs> There's lots of bad days, yeah. lots of days where I say I'm a failure in every single place. Um, but then you just kind of brush off and stand up and keep going. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.